right, ladies and gentlemen, happy to be introducing a new episode of the Digital Guardian podcast here with friends, colleagues, Thomas and Will. How's it going, guys? Good morning, Chris. It's going well. Sort of kind of finding my you know groove here. Yeah, good morning, Chris. It's, it's good. I mean, it's end of the year podcast. Always good to have. It's the obligatory, sometimes mandated <laughs> end of the year retrospective, you know, uh, in the security industry. What a year. What a year. I feel like we have no shortage of things to talk about here. Got WannaCry. You've got not Petya, Bad Rabbit. You've got the Equifax breach. Shadow brokers, uh, breaches, uh, just a, a, you know, an influx of, you know, S3 leaks, breaches. Who wasn't breached this year? It's just a, you know, a common well, ubiquitous say, thing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> so I'd actually go the opposite. Whose personal data isn't on the internet now? I mean, it's almost like we're back into the, what was it, the 90s when Scott McNeely turned around at a conference and said, you know, there is no privacy anymore. Get over it. I and mean, it's like, we've really hit that, that piece now, right? Because we've between Equifax, which has basically leaked every, every U.S. citizens and some of the U.K. citizens' personal information, not to mention all the passwords and usernames that Yahoo lost that got tripled, was it quadrupled since their first announcement this year? Then there's also, you know, Uber and it's, well, let's not get into ethical practices. But it's just, I think right now, we probably hit a level where there is no information to leak anymore. Not true, but you know, you could almost imagine it because the amount of information that's just out there is, is becoming hilarious. Yeah, it's just so saturated. I mean, you guys had Troy Hunt on last month. And yeah, I have a feeling that if anybody went to Have I Been Pwned and entered in you know, one of their email addresses, probably on there. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, it's 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 become the norm, right? And with to Thomas's point, with McNeely's quote, going back all those many years, we really have hit that juxtaposition point where the concept of privacy is really is really a, a paper dragon in today's world, right? We fight for it, we argue for it, we debate its relevance, its merit, its importance, and at the same token, we have this to contend with, right? And we also have the sacrifice of privacy that we make it by our own hand. So it's a really it's a really hard problem for information security professionals to contend with, right? You're asked to ensure privacy, right? You're asked to cover the bases, to mitigate the risk, to shore up the attack surface. And the same token, data is is flowing from innumerable numbers of sources. That the, the perimeter is dead, and life as we know it is nowhere near where it was 10, 15 years ago with regards to these things. Yeah, but so, I mean, let's go back a bit, Will. You're saying, you know, we as information securities have to protect a, a person's privacy. So I would argue that that's where we're kind of failing in the concept because we're not asked, we're not really asked to protect the user's privacy, right? The user is giving over information to, to a company, to a website, you know, to Uber, to do business, to do whatever. The problem is, is that, we're not actually being asked to protect that person's privacy. We're being asked to ensure that the information that we that we are asking for is protected, right? Which isn't, re- I mean, it's it's not really about privacy, and that's that's probably one of the reasons why I, I kind of like, you know, I know we don't want to really talk about GDPR, but GDPR talks about personal data, 
and talks about data protection. It doesn't talk about privacy, right? In the US, some, somehow the data protection officer has become a data privacy officer. And that's potentially because of, you know, the norms and the, you know, and the way that people in the US see things is that there's a much more open environment. While in Europe, we've, we've always had a very conscious effort to protect our own privacy, right? Because, I mean, if you think about historically Europe, we've, we've trodden on people's personal rights for, for centuries, right? So we're weary of that privacy aspect, but, but we do want to give personal data to be able to do business, to be able to go to use some of these new services. And the only thing that as security professionals, we should be focusing on is how do we protect that data from being misused, right? It's not just about breaches, it's about being misused. And right. And, and, and that's where if we start focusing on oh, how do we take people's privacy, you failed already because you can't really protect somebody's privacy unless they take the initiative to take to, to do their privacy. Yeah. I, yeah, I would agree with you. The only the only reason I said what I said was because specifically to what to the world that we're a part of the, the information security, cybersecurity world and, and kind of all of its accoutrements bleeding into even the consumer world that we're also a part of. Right. So there's yeah. the commercial and the consumer. The only reason I said that is because it's an irrefutable point that at some point in time, if, if I come to work for you or you come to work for me or I sign up for Amazon or I sign up for Uber or whatever the case may be, a transaction occurs that involves your personal information to an extent, some form of PII, mine, Chris's, Ellen's, whomever's. And at some point, there is an, there is an understanding that as part of that social contract, that one party and trusts the other with that information. Now, that's not the same. I'm not suggesting that it's entire. It's an entire privacy and you know advocation in the sense of EFF and all those kind of things. But what I am saying is, is that there's a material responsibility. Yeah, I agree. That data. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I agree with that point, right? I said, I mean, it's it's terminology. It's just that we get so focused on terminology, sometimes we take the wrong direction, right? And we and we focus on some of the wrong things, right? And if you go back to if if we had that aspect in mind of what are we doing to protect the data, we might be able to avoid some of these breaches. You know, it's like we were, you know, before we started, we were discussing some of, you know, if we talk about relevant breaches this year, rather, you know, we talk about Equifax, which was due to, you know, mispatched application. Let's just leave it to that. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the commonality, the common new data exfiltration leaks this year, I think it was three or four of them were due to misconfigured DevOps operations, right? So let's start with a big one from the latest news, which is a crapshoot, which was Uber, and it's hiding from last year. But why Why did it happen? You know, the analysis says that it happened because they, DevOps left some, you know, left their AWS API keys in, the, in, in, the, in GitHub. So, I mean, if you do that, of course, you know, somebody's going to look, find them and and use them, you know, that's the Verizon one. What was it? It was because a third party had basically left an AWS S3 bucket open. There was another one this year. Oh, yeah. You know, there was a, who's Alan Hamilton did one with the Department of Defense. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of that, right? right? And to your point, that's basically the execution of poor hygiene and, and operational security, right? Yeah. And that's because a lot of these companies are working on, on improving, you know, improving the operational, you know, deployment of new applications and new services. So they're moving to a DevOps type environment. And unfortunately, you know, DevOps, where a lot of the people don't think about security in DevOps. I mean, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of DevSecOps, but, 
you know, DevSecOps, nobody really practices it. Well, the people who do practice it are, are few and rare, right? It's Yeah. I mean, nowadays, I'm, I'm almost to the point where, you know, breaches like that, you know, large-scale breaches like that, you're almost asking for it if you're, if you're not practicing, as Will said, you know, security hygiene in, 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 your develop, in your DevOps practices or even in your application practices or even with third-party, you know, with third-parties, partners. I mean, I mean, we saw this this year. Partners are basically becoming one of the essential biggest threats to your to your security hygiene today because we don't control the we don't follow through on man, managing and controlling the partners on the point of view of security as soon as you go down that road you know you've you've opened another door and i, I mean i think next year we're going to see even more and more of this of this type of problem is that we're we're not following through on on ensuring that the security goes from our organizations into the partner organizations and even the partners have partners so you know that whole supply chain is a complete crapshoot because you're going to basically sit there and go oh i'm delegating this i'm delegating this i'm delegating this but where's the security delegation you know how are you controlling the security of that information across the board i think we should move on to another subject because <laughs> i could go on about this all day yeah, we can. We don't have to talk about breaches the whole time here. I don't know if you guys want to talk about. I mean, obviously, I feel like WannaCry is probably the biggest, you know, the biggest glaring headline that kind of stands out from this year. I think to many folks, regardless, just because the way it, oh, the way it started in that that one morning and sort of spread from what was it, you know, Ukraine, Eastern Europe, yeah, Eastern Europe down to Spain, back up to the UK. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a timeline thing, right? It's like as soon as people wake up, they turn on their, their machines, the machines get compromised, and then it just starts spreading. I mean, before we go into, you know, I'd say there was one interesting thing that came out of WannaCry is the impact was so enormous that people actually started waking up. And we kind of saw, it's, it's funny because, you know, although you saw not Petya afterwards and a whole bunch of others, you actually saw a decline in the wave of ransomwares, right? That come, that are coming and going. And it's like, the issue is, is that basically once it hit that, that mass exploitation and people were, became very conscious of ransomware, it woke up a lot of people and it woke up a lot of organizations that we weren't normally going to, going to do anything or weren't normally taking the right precautions. But when we look at, if we look at specifically WannaCry and how it spread, we're coming down to a point where we're looking at, we're back to, are we doing the right things as, a, as an organization and are we applying best practices in security? Because, I mean, let's face it, a lot of that could have been avoided if proper patching mechanisms and proper security protocols were in place. I mean, it's like, why would you leave you know, SMB shares open to the internet? There's absolutely no reason for it yet it was open, right? Yeah, I mean, you can argue that because we're coming into an environment where, you know, perimeter security, that doesn't mean you enable all the services anyway, right? You, you can take precautions and not enable those services. Yeah. I don't know. Will, do you, do you want to jump in? Or, I mean, you had some thoughts on, on WannaCry as well. Yeah, I think the issue that primarily with WannaCry is that, to your point, if you un- unravel that particular event... <laughs> And you start looking at, at that particular event in context from a multidimensional perspective. You first note that WannaCrypt had been around for ages. It was just another annoying form of crypto ransomware that would go off and you know, hold people hostage. 
It was the basis, however, for, and this is the, I think the truly important part, right? And what made it so, what made it so powerful is that it was the basis for bigger things, largely speaking due to the access to tools made available by the fine folks at the shadow brokers. So if were it not for the impetus of those particular exploit tools, right? The Pulsar tool and the other tool whose name escapes me right now. Anyway, and were it not for the advent of those and the availability of those tools, the order of magnitude of severity of that particular threat likely would not have been as great as it was. And then, of course, that led into the entire case where thoughts were starting to be be given to attribution as it related to the DPRK and, and what that me- means on a global scale and the fact that, you know, whether or not Eternal Blue, excuse me. So, yeah, we're not we're not for Eternal Blue being, you know, being you know, inc- incorporated as well as the double pulsar that wouldn't it would not have been serious. So getting back to the concept of the impact globally, right, and the impact on hundreds of thousands of systems and then the potential impact on a global scale with respect to the relevance of attribution being uh, being given to the DPRK as a potential staging or proof of concept for something larger by which to incorporate those those same tools. I don't know that we would be talking about it, right? So if you look at this particular that particular threat, that particular event, and its sequence of growth, to me the ransomware was never the story, right? And I always thought that was it was disproportionately spoken about in the media and by vendors and pretty much by everybody. The real story was the incorporation of the tools, the exploit tools that were gained illicitly via the shadow brokers and made public after a good long period of time. Shadow brokers had been been being tracked for almost four years by that point in time, but they did not release that information up until, you know, a few months prior to the launch of, of WannaCry. So when you look at that and you go, oh my gosh, that's the bigger story, right? Is the, is the potential for gross access to what had been previously considered to be clandestine tool sets, weaponized tool sets that were utilized in specific use cases by specific organizations for national security and things of that nature, made available, largely speaking, kind of, you know, I think publicly considered as well as privately considered via illicit means, that's the story. So when you look at that, you go, oh, this is now all of a sudden at a different stage of elevation. It's not simply about the ransomware. And I think that that's, in my opinion, we started to see a surge in effort and attention on any form of ransomware. It became, which I which I, I understand and I think we all do, it became the term of the, of the day, or as you French folks might say, Tom, the, the term du jour <laughs> within the industry. But the bigger story wasn't wasn't the ransomware. <laughs> In fact, right, the Bitcoin purse was left largely speaking un, unaddressed, which is why many people, researchers and myself included, started thinking, "Hey, the incorporation of those the exploits is probably a, a pre a pre staging element associated with a POC for ladder operations." So, anyway, I'll stop there for and give pause. I agree with you, Will. It's it's there's two focuses, right? I mean, I'll go back to to. To your train of thought, because I yeah, I agree with your train of thought. But if you go back to the ransomware, why was the ransomware picked on? Well, you know, because we as an industry we'd been saying, you know, for for years, and you know, we'd seen it in the U.S. last not last year, last year in 2016, where hospitals were being hit by ransomware, and that campaign, the WannaCry campaign specifically. I mean, almost brought down the NHS, right? Which is the you know the UK National Health Service. It really did impact on patient care. And that, and what's funny is, is it's it did make a lot of news because of that potential for you know f- 
for bodily harm. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's gone so mainstream that I don't know if you noticed, but you know, Grey's Anatomy actually put put something similar to WannaCry in one in their last couple of episodes. Right? I, I heard about so that. You, There's lots of tweets. I mean, that was that. That's why the the ransomware part got focused on. Right. I saw that episode as well, and uh, it's important to note that there was also evidence in the United States with Cedar Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles well in advance, although the, the UK's issue was far greater. But yeah, so that, that use case was there, especially for those types of environments. But I, And I think that's why, to your point, that's why it started to resonate with people, right? So on the one hand, it became real to people in a very real way, in a very real context, who otherwise, throughout the course of their daily lives, probably would never have given pause to think about something called wanna crypt or wanna cry. Right? I, mean, I don't think it was the wanna cry pathway. It was just that those machines were blocked and they were stopping healthcare, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was ter- It was a terrible thing. And you know, it's it's it was a terrible thing. Yeah. So if I go if I go back to to your other trainer for on the exploits, so Eternal Blue and Deep Pulsar, you know, I fully agree. And we come back to what's more important, you know, protecting those exploits, knowing that they have the potential to be released because of you know some. Uh, well, in, in, in this case, it was shadow brokers, but it could have been, you know, like a, a, a an, inter, an insider hacktivist who didn't agree with the methods of, uh, you know, a three-letter agency. So you have all these exploits under your bonnet that potentially could get leaked. Is it your responsibility to actually not hold those and release them to the software manufacturer so that they can build the patches? Because, I mean, that, that that's, you know, we come back to responsible disclosure, right, to a certain extent. Should governments be held to the same stringent responsible disclosures as you know private researchers are and even if you look at that that three-letter agency knew something was going to happen because microsoft actually wrote the patch in february you know and the exploit was used in april all right well they well if you follow the story that particular agency notified microsoft so here's the bottom line on that right so this is my opinion i believe that in context, and everything's always driven by context, that if we're going to go down the path and start talking about the evolution of cyber warfare, I'm happy to do that. I believe that when you start considering the fact that, that the cyber realm, as, we, as, as, as it's called, is the fifth domain of warfare and traditional militaristic sensibilities, you've got air, sea, land, space, and, and cyber, that you have to, it's an inherent responsibility to preserve a posture. This is all, it's, 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 a, it's similar concepts to the military industrial complex in conventional warfare terminology, you need to understand potential passive ingress and egress for your own ecosystems. And at the same time, understand those that are related to your adversaries. Now, I'm not suggesting that what you're describing isn't appropriate. But what I am suggesting to you is that, and anyone else for that matter, is that there is a need to keep these things classified. And there is a need to secure them in a manner that is requisite of that of the potential severity that is related to those potential cyber munitions because of the potential for gross impact on a global scale. I don't, without indicting anyone, because you know we, not, none of us were involved in that investigation, none of us were part of that organization. You know, I think I think it's a question of really suggesting that it would be a very different picture if if all of a sudden members of, for example, what are colloquially referred to as the Five Eyes said, "Hey, you know what? We're not we're no longer going to endeavor into uh, looking into these areas of research." as part of you know, the defense in the cyber domain. And we're going to, we're going to assign a, a, an overt agreement that suggests that anytime we find something, we're going to immediately notify the vendors and make it public. Imagine, if you will, what the, what the, land, the global landscape would look like 
this is not an advocation. I'm just stating, you know, from one point of view based on background and things of that nature. Imagine what you would, what you might see on a global scale if five good guys all of a sudden said, hey, you know what? We're not going to do that any longer. We're not going to endeavor in those research activities because for these reasons. Meanwhile, no one else in particular, the really nasty or, <laughs> entities on a global basis say, hey, great. They're no longer doing it. We're not going to stop. <laughs> it's a dynamic that has to be considered multidimensionally. I understand it, 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 all too well what you're saying. Hey, is there a responsibility? Absolutely. There's a responsibility to ensure that those things are secured and kept secure. In my opinion, this isn't. This may or may not have been a technological failing. This is probably a, a people failing, as are most of these situations when it comes to intellectual property. But again, I'm not going to speak about that because I can't, because I don't have the details. But I would say this, that though I understand people's visceral response to that, if they take a step back and say, hey, what does it mean if we didn't do that? Or we just went and we became, we became public with all of our findings? doesn't mean that, our, that the parties who have, seek to undermine the nations that, that you find yourself living in and I find myself living in and everyone else, you know, many of the folks, not everyone are listening to will follow suit, right? That's, it's a little too altruistic and it's not reflective of the real world, I think. I don't disagree with that. It's in a perfect world, you know, we wouldn't, we could have that kind of methodology because patch was, would be released urgently and, you know, companies would update on the spot and, you know, we wouldn't have open machines on the internet or, you know, we wouldn't have exploitable machines on the internet. So the adversary could, you know, would have a harder time and they'd have to find, you know, it's, there's a perfect world and there's a, you know, and there's the reality of things and the reality of things is that, you know, these, these things need to happen, right. And are going on and we, it is, Maybe we need more, you know, activist, active researchers who push out all the information that needs to be pushed out, so that you know organizations take take better heed, and that companies like Microsoft or like Apple can re- release release patches in a in a more coherent way. I mean, and even if you look at some of the response of of the issue of patching is that when you look at newer operating systems, they automatically get updated, right? Or they, you know, they force you to, to, to uh, they try to force you to update by telling you all the time. I mean, but as you say, we, it's back to people, right? So if you don't do the work of actually creating your, you know, implementing your security policies, ensuring that your procedures work, ensuring that your, that your, you know, your staff, your employees, your, your contractors are all up to par and they understand, you know, how, what the impacts of security, then you're not going to go, you're not going to go very far. I mean, it's sometimes I'm left dumbfound really to be, I mean, when, when I see this, because we could be doing things better, that's all. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? And I think that when you and going back kind of full circle back to wanna cry, right? I think that's the, the challenge there is, is that you know people say, well, my gosh, there should be immediate and open disclosure. And I think that if we're talking about commercial entities, it's easy to say that when you're talking about the the defense industrial base, whether here or in the UK or any of the Five Eyes or governments, it's a little different because. The dynamics, the problems, that's the challenges, the missions are different, right? And the ramifications are different, right? So it's, it's, it's nuanced. And I don't know that our industry is always particularly sensitive to that nuance, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, it's, you know, the thing that I found funny was that there was a lot of focus on WannaCry. But if you think about one of the bigger malware issues that we had this year, was potentially for me at least it was it was Mirai right I mean Mirai is could have a longer term impact that's just that we don't necessarily you know comprehend today 
that was a particularly nasty one, right? And of course, the, the authors just pleaded guilty just this week, right? So that's a, you know, considered a win by the good guys. But, you know, when you start to your point, when you start looking at the, the magnitude of that particular botnet and then the, other, the ancillary botnets that sprang up and out as a result of Mirai being the source code being made public by the authors, uh, Mr. Ja, and then, you know, some of the other things that they were involved in, it's a Pandora's box. So this is a good point because I know you're passionate about this, Tom. Start, let's talk about Mirai and let's explain to the audience for, for who may or may not be familiar with it, ideally those who are not, what Mirai is, what it impacts, and why it's, it's different, summarily speaking, from many other botnets that, that many people are familiar with. So, I mean, maybe we should go back to what is a botnet, right? A botnet essentially is a, is a network of compromised computers, but in this case, we are talking about compromised devices. So a botnet, its task is to listen to a command and control center that command and control center then sends out, for example, the address of your website or the address of your corporate email, something like that. And the botnet is in charge of just bombarding that environment until it goes down. So doing a deny, what we call a denial of service. Botnets can be used for other things too. They can be used also to launch spam campaigns in certain cases. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why you would want to have a botnet out there. It's it's essentially, I mean, it's you can think of it as a really nasty form of distributed computing, right? Because you've basically got a whole bunch of agents that are out there that you can control. Now, if we go back to the peculiarity of Mirai, is Mirai actually affected? So, what we call customer and you know customer premise device. So, in this case, specifically certain route, certain route is provided to you by the ISPs, but it could be other things like cameras. So, if you deploy like one like of these Netgear or whatever, you know, B-Link or any other type of camera. They could be compromised as well. Yeah, in fact, it did. It did target predominantly IP cameras and, and uh, home routers, network devices. And I think, if I remember correctly, there was a German telecom company. I think it was Deutsche Telekom who had something along the lines of a million devices impacted by a variant of Mirai that was launched by a British citizen. His hacker name was Best Buy. I that was funny. <laughs> and that wasn't even carried out by the original authors of the Mirai botnet, it was, right? It was a variant. Yeah. Yeah. To your point, you know, the magnitude of this one was pretty significant, especially as the impact that it had on uh, on the on the DIN network, right? You know, back in 2016, in uh, October of 2016. But go ahead, Tom. Keep going, man. So the peculiarity of this one, is, especially, is it attacks embedded embedded Linux operating systems. So yeah, it's a very small kernel that you put on these types of devices to control them. But it opens the door for something that's much worse, right? Because we are potentially talking, unlike you know the computers that are out there that you can secure via patching, via antivirus uh, software, and things like that. These types of devices are, are historically very difficult to update, and historically very difficult to patch. And there's a reason for that because you know they're cheap devices, they're small, they just have to be configured to do one thing, and they have to be easy to use by the consumer, right? Because it's a consumer device. So you, you know, in most cases, the ISP routers they don't even have any configuration or very little configuration. Everything's managed by the ISP. So the problem of of remote management of of these devices, either from a vendor or from or from the ISP themselves, and that's where this this becomes interesting because if you can exploit these things. And, you know, I mean, most estimates today is it's going to be by next year. I mean, next year or a couple of years, it's going to be a billion of them or even 10 billion of them on the network, you know, on the internet. The botnet or whatever you use it for is going to be 
very aggressive because you're going to have a large, the largest scale of active malicious devices that you've, you know, that you can possibly control. So the impact, you know, some, some I've, I've read articles where, you know, scale never seen before potential to bring down the internet. Well, we can argue that on another podcast, but it's demonstrated that IOT is a really good way to, to attack or to get something out of people. And I read just this morning an article on the BBC, I think it was published yesterday, on the news to the BBC on the technology side, of an Austrian hotel up in the up in the Alps that had been hacked at their IoT devices and specifically, interestingly enough, their electronic car you know, electronic door locks for the rooms had been hacked and ransomed four times, right? So I, four I times this guy yeah. got Four times this guy had, had been, this hotel had been hacked on their IoT devices. Since then, you know, they put in the security measures, they, they, they've done everything possible. You know, they switched back to, to using physical keys, right? And they also found out from the Austrian police that the credentials for all of their systems were on some server in Finland or something, or some, some other country. So this is the problem, right? Is that, You've got all these little devices that traditionally are hard to secure or don't have any security because of cost, and now they're completely exploitable and on the internet, right? And they're a backdoor into your environment. So that's the explanation of why this is so important. What's so funny is I, I sort of thought of Mariah as, as a 2016 thing just based on the DIN attack, but I forgot there are all these little kind of ripples, ripples these stories that happened this year. I mean, last month there was a a variant that was spotted by Kihu three sixty researchers. There was another variant called IO Troop, I guess, from October. Yeah. And there was even a competing botnet that I think was trying to trying to secure basically open telnet instances that was like going head to head with Mirai earlier this year. There's kind of some interesting stories there. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, if you extend, so, you know, we are talking about IoT, Internet of Things. We should, we should have mentioned that for those who aren't familiar with the term, although I'm pretty sure everybody's familiar with the term nowadays, is that it extends, right? Because IoT now has just become one, you know, large, uh, one general terminology for things that control, you know, that are, you know, that are on the network that control other things, right? Or that can give you other services. There's a whole bunch of implications, including what about you know production control systems or SCADA systems? Are these vulnerable as well? Can this be used to bring down an uh, electrical grid? Can this be used to bring down a pumping station? Well, you know, we've been talking about this for years and years, but I think this whole aspect of Mirai and you know the release of the code and just the the downflow of of things that have been happening on IoT devices has just made that part of can our infrastructures be hacked even more relevant than they were before, right? Before we were unsure. Now we probably we can pretty much say, yes, you know, we know this can happen. You know, these devices, we know they're insecure. There was Pentest Partners at DEF CON that demonstrated hacking a home thermostat, right? One of like a Nest type device. So, you know, they demonstrate you can hack it. So what's the implication? Well, the implication is that let's say I, you know, ran, I could hack your device, turn off the heating in the middle of winter. You know, in some places it's like minus 10 degrees Celsius or even 
what are you going to do? You know, you're going to pay to get it back on. You're going to pay to be able to access your device. Or if think about over, you know, over electrical consumption, what if I control a whole bunch of home automation devices, turn on all the lights, turn on all the electrical stuff, you know, blast it, you know, in the whole city block. That means that you're going to get a sudden surge of demand of electricity. What, how is that going to tax the infrastructure? It does the implications. Just, I mean, you can basically start to build this whole tree of potentially bad things that could happen just from this one aspect of, oh, great, we can hack IoT devices. Yeah, that sounds like a Mr. Robot season two. I think there was an episode on that. <laughs> just chaos. Yeah, but I mean, re- remember, I mean, uh, Mr. Robot are using some pretty experimented consultants, right? And yeah, it's they're not the stuff that they're doing is is you know is doable, realistic, and it's not something that that's you know, storytelling, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. The, what's what's the guy's name? The the Dark Tangent is the guy on Twitter that helps consult them. He, he knows his stuff. Yeah. But what else do we want to talk about here? I feel like we've nailed sort of all the Mirai copycats and the, the variants. We talked about WannaCry. What else can we put on the burner here? Well, clearly there are a multitude of breaches that we could we could talk about. And I think there are some that are more perhaps noteworthy than others. But, you know, I, I think one area that, that grinds Tom's gears, and this is perhaps maybe a little bit more of, a, of an opportunity for Tom to kind of soapbox about it, but let's, we'll, we'll save this for a moment here, are our PowerShell-based, otherwise known as fileless attacks. Before we go there, I, I think it's important, just to close off with Mirai, the things that I found most interesting about that particular, that particular event were the guys who authored it actually were the same guys who founded an anti-DDoS or a DDoS mitigation organization. So uh, that, that I found interesting. So it's, it, you know, that's curious. So right? right. Another thing that I thought was interesting, if you look at the original code base for Mirai, it included private networks and addresses that were excluded from infection. So in other words, they had tables of IPs and ranges of IPs that, that were effectively speaking rendered off limits from, from potential targeting. Those IP addresses and those ranges fell out to the United States Postal Service and the Department of Defense. So it's interesting how they approached what they approached, what was on what was what was on the table, what was off the table. I forgot about that one. Yeah, and at the same point in time that they also had a business that was set up in order to mitigate this the, the baddies who were out there ddosing the heck out of people, right? So it's kind of interesting. Let's shift gears for a minute. Let's talk about. Well, hold on a second. Will. Do you remember? I mean, it, it makes me laugh because you remember, like three or four years ago, there was a rash of Russian malware. And that malware actually checked your keyboard configuration to see if it was Russian so that it wouldn't infect Russian machines because it was illegal to hack the Russian. In Russia, there's a law that says you're not allowed to hack the you know, Russian network. So the guys had specifically excluded any Russian machines to ensure that they wouldn't be against the law. I, I recall that. Yeah, I do recall that. But so it's kind of like courteous criminals, right? So, it's, you know, we have to take some precautions. We got to have rules around here. Yeah, so moving right along, let's let's shift gears to what, what is potentially, we talked about, I know Tom alluded to this in, a, a little bit in the beginning, but the, obviously I'd say the, the, uh, the 900 pound gorilla of breaches this year <laughs> was the Equifax breach, right? And we'll talk, we can certainly go back and revisit the recent Uber revelation as well, if you'd like to, Tom, but let's talk about Equifax for a moment and, and uh, what we saw as a result of that breach and why it's different perhaps than some of the other breaches in terms of scale and magnitude. Mm, so why is it different? I would say scale and magnitude. It surprised me, but didn't at the end of the day, right? The problem was 
the release of that magnitude, right? So at first it was only, you know, a certain population that was affected. Then it was, I can't remember how many million off the top of my head. I wasn't, I was less concerned about the US, but, you know, then three months down the road, they say 75 million UK, you know, UK people were affected as well. I could be wrong on that number, but, you know, it's just essentially the lack of, I'd say, knowledge and preparedness around exactly what kind of data was exfiltrated and how much data was exfiltrated. That's what really got got to me in terms of, of the magnitude and, and and just the lack of responsibility of, of you know, responsible breach notification, right? You can go down the road of why the hell are they collecting all this data in the first place? I, I know why they're collecting it. You don't have to explain it to me. But do you really need to keep that information, right, for such a long time? And shouldn't you be doing, if you are keeping that information, why is it publicly available on the internet? I mean, you're selling it to, to banks and to credit loan agencies like that. It doesn't need to be publicly available. Are you suggesting that perhaps there's a, <laughs> that their model of operations is flawed, Tom? Am I suggesting it? <laughs> okay. So I had this discussion the other day with some people, right? We were talking about Equifax and breaches. And then like going, it's like, how would this fall under GDPR? You gave me that door, Will. Okay. The problem is, is that under GDPR, they would never be allowed to operate technically, right? They could never do what they're doing because number one, they're collecting personal information without the person's explicit consent, right? Now, explicit consent, you know, there's a whole bunch of flood on it, but basically if you're in a contractual agreement, you, you know, you can collect the data, but the Equifax has no contractual agreement with the person, right? They have absolutely no interaction with the personal de- person that owns that personal data that they're collecting, right? They're just basically scouring all of the p- available credit information and compiling it and then reselling it. It's like, I mean, yeah, talk about, in- inv- we were talking about invasion of privacy at the beginning, but this is beyond invasion of privacy, right? You're actually, you're cataloging and collecting financial information about people, right? Without their knowledge, without well, their consent and you're basically using it to make money. And the problem is, it's like, even if, you know, if people were saying, oh, it's going to bring down Equifax, it's going to bring down these organizations. It's not. Because the fact of the way that this this kind of system works is that people need that information. So even if Equifax as a company suddenly disappears, it's just going to be replaced by another one that does exactly the same thing. And remember, there are other organizations like it that already do the same thing. Yeah, I would actually argue that the model without the proper precautions, right? Again, it's it's not the it's not. It's, I'm going to go out on a stretch here and, and suggest that there's an equivalence here uh, in terms of the the overt volume of data, right? That's that's being collected, and then the, the sensitivity of that data, and then the responsibility to ensure that right. it's that it's safeguarded, right? And the same thing that we talked about earlier with the data that was acquired via the shadow brokers and through the Vault Seven stuff. So it through and released through WikiLeaks. I think it's interesting in the sense that this particular case, because of its its broad spectrum impact above and beyond that of the United States, really again in a similar fashion to WannaCrypt and WannaCry woke people up. Now, what did we? I, what I felt was different, and what I saw that I thought it was kind of interesting and unique was two things. It wasn't the first time I'd seen a CISO have to take responsibility for something like this, but again, the order of magnitude was was such that I think. 
it was appropriate, right? Although there's some skepticism. I didn't like the fact that people kind of tried to attack the CISA, who I've never met before. I don't know her because she had music degrees. But, you know, I could, I could rattle off 10 or more people. But, you know, the point is, is that, you know, that's not necessarily indicative of a good security executive anyway. I didn't like that. But, you know, again, that point considered, that point, you know, notwithstanding, I thought that the executives out there did take responsibility and the CEO did step down. And some people said, well, he stepped down and he got a big package. And I'm like, well, that's, he stepped down, he stepped aside. It happened on his watch, his his package and his and the contestment of his package is irrelevant to what took place with respect to the breach. Having said that, you know, to your point earlier, this particular breach, as I understand it, occurred via a vulnerable website, right? A web server, right? That had that had back that had that had an unfettered communication path to the internal network, right? I think that again gets back to the basics of the blocking and tackling, basic IT hygiene, basic security concepts. Basic risk management and risk mitigation concepts, vulnerability management, you know, ensuring that your architectures, especially for an organization that contains the type of data that they contain is properly zoned and secured and segmented. And, you know, you know, and, and all those, those things which are elementary from an architectural perspective, not just security architecture, but network architecture to make it much more difficult for something bad like this to happen. Right. That was the interesting thing to me. <laughs> Yeah, even application security, if you think about it, right? Application security fundamentally would require, like you said, a structured, you know, a zoned and, and compartmentalized infrastructure to protect the, to ultimately protect the data. The fact that they were using a, you know, a third-party tool as, as their base, well, it's not, you know, Struts is essentially what you can call it a third-party, you know, an open-source library that you're using as an application base. It's your responsibility also to ensure that your application is secure on top of that base, right? And if you have to follow the evolutions of and the vulnerabilities related to, to your bases, you need to think about it, right? Basic application hygiene says that you can log all the all the libraries that you're using that aren't yours or all the code that you're using that's not yours, and you you ensure that it's going through the same level of secure development that you're putting into your application. There's so many failures around it just, this was a big failure and it, you know, because of the magnitude, it made it relevant, but they're not the only organization that's failing like this, right? It's just beyond me. I don't want to make this, this, this podcast uh, explicit content. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, again, it's, these are things that I think, you know, to me, I think, again, for people who have been in the space for, you know, probably as long as we have over 20 years, you look at it and you go, it's when we started out in the nineties, so much of what was rooted and related to security was absolutely tied to systems and network architecture design, right? And today it still is. Somewhere along the line, we've lost or we've deprioritized that and de-emphasized the need to understand network architecture and protocols and how systems work and all those things. And, and I'm not suggesting that that's what led to what occurred with Equifax. But what I am suggesting to you is, is that when I was in a position doing penetration tests and security assessments and red teaming and things of that nature, we exhaustively reviewed to the point of pain, architectural designs, zoning, mm. DMZs, you know, in, in the course of pro- whether it was zero knowledge or, or after, you know, zero knowledge type of penetration, you know, work with respect to enumeration, or if we had full discretionary elements and we were looking at their designs for all of these reasons. And this is going back many, many, many years ago. So I know that it's not a concept that what, the things that we're talking about that aren't known. What troubles me is that they're not done. And if they are done, why are they not acted upon? And that's 
where I think this case was kind of an interesting. So this is, you raise a really interesting point, actually, Will. So you historically done done pet testing. I've historically done pen testing too. I've also, you know, I've also managed uh, endpoint security for large organizations. The issue comes down to the want of organizations to go beyond the compliance checklist, right? And if you look at most of these organizations, you know, a lot of these organizations, they see compliance checklists. So they'll go out, get a pen test shop just so that they've run a pen test on the on this thing. So I don't want to to knock down certain organizations, but I know certain organizations are, you know, charge crap load of money and they're considered the big consulting companies in the world, they basically have juniors that run tools, scripted tools to evaluate, do your pen test, write a report, and that's all they do, right? And they don't go beyond that point. And once you've done that report, unless you, you know, if you find something suspicious, it's your responsibility to fix it, right? If something suspicious is in that report, it's your responsibility to fix it. And this happens all too often, right? And there's too many organizations that just rely on a pen test report in this way, and they don't do anything about this. So, you know, and there's two responsible parties for that. There's the pen testing organization that's not really doing its work. And then there's the, the you know, the organization requested the pen Test that isn't going beyond just reading the report and just checking off that checklist. Yeah, I know in the UK, and hopefully we'll see something like this, especially after Equifax, you've got CBEST and, and the, the, I believe incorporates the press framework, you know, which is yeah. specifically geared toward banking and financials. You know, to me, it's like, again, it, you know, where I see so, and I'm, I'm actually one of those probably rare birds who argues that in modern times, the CIO should report to the CISO due to the total complexity and ownership of risk, but we'll save that for another time. But where are the CISO? I would I would absolutely mandate exhaustive analysis of network designs. And I would, you know, that to me is just so fundamentally, principally important to proper understanding of your risk posture. How do you know what you are at risk of or from? How can you possibly understand what you're what you're trying to secure if you don't know what it looks like? You don't understand the nuances, the dependencies. You know, and again, this isn't, hey, let's bash on Equifax. This is applicable to lots of organizations, right? You know, I think principally, principally, that's something that I don't hear a lot of people in the space, not to say that we're the only guys talking about this at all, but I certainly don't hear that as being a principal point of conversation. You know, it's, it's to me, it's, it's as elementary and at the same time as foundationally important as patch assessment, post-vulnerability analysis. It's like, look, those are things that at a minimum you should be doing. <laughs> you should be scrutinizing your network design, you know? For sure, because I mean, yeah, just because you patch doesn't mean that you fix things, right? Completely, a patch introduces a new bug. I mean, look at the this macOS fiasco, right? With the with the fail open on root password, right? Just because you've patched something doesn't mean that you haven't introduced a new a new problem, right? But I've, I mean, I fully agree with you. It's like if I've always, you know, I've always been into what secure development lifecycle. I've applied it to managing your whole infrastructure, right? So if you're building a solution, because I don't look at it as as aspects of of, of an application, because today we don't just build applications, build solutions, right? That's an application, a network. You might be using cloud services and everything like that. You need to evaluate that security profile, and to evaluate that security profile, you need to understand the risks that you're going to face on that application and what your threat profiles are, right? What kind of threats you might be facing. Yeah, of course, today, one of the biggest threats probably would be, you know, 
ransom ransoming your data or exfiltration of your data or destruction of your data you know that's one of the first things you should be evaluating that's one of the first things you should be doing you know doing an assessment on the threat and risks on how you man- manipulating data yeah and i think that's very important right and, and again if i took anything away from equifax kind of in the same way that i took it from the year prior's opm i guess it was your prior yeah i think it was 2016 right it's like these are basic foundational foundational elements not just of security but just good network management do you understand how your net what how your network operates do you understand how it's architected what are the dependencies how does zoning work you know is it possible for exploitation to occur on any system sitting out in a dmz that might lead to you know introduction and lateral movement within the network due to poor architecture that doesn't even really require bringing in a heavy hitting security guy or gal for that's hey Let's see your visio diagram. Let's talk about the way your your environment is architected. Let's look at the dependencies. Let's look at those things. Are you architecting for security? And if you're not, why? Especially when you're when you're dealing with, and I would say this, you know, I'll qualify this by saying when you're dealing with data of the ilk and kind that Equifax was dealing with. But in the modern world, going back to the earliest parts of this conversation, when you're dealing with social contracts that rely on one party assuming responsibility and ownership for another party's a derivative of that party's personal information, it's beholden upon you to take those things seriously and make the appropriate assessments of your environment regularly. If we learn one thing, and if anything good comes out of Equifax, it may be that, hey, number one, executives, not just the CISO, because the CISO, it seems like historically always takes it right on the chin when it comes to these things, but that CEOs can be impacted by this, board members can be impacted by this, and that the risk isn't simply just dropped, right? That you can't transfer the responsibility. You can transfer the risk. People talk about transference of risk a lot. Oh, we'll outsource it with this. But guess what? The ownership is the organizations, you know? And I'll pause for a moment. I know that we're coming up on an hour or more. Do we want to talk about anything else, guys and gals? Well, you you wanted to talk about fileless malware, whatever, however you fileless attacks, right? Yeah, I thought I would bring that up because I know that's a particularly troubling concept to you. It bothers, it bothers you on a, on a visceral level. Well, so for a lot of, you know, I'd say, well, let's call it marketing, right? Um, well, not marketing, but researchers claiming that now we can be, we can be hacked with fileless malware and, and, you know, just with a few commands, you can exploit a machine without ever dropping anything on, on the machine. I just don't agree, right? I mean, Technically, yes, the user's not downloading an executable and running an executable. But that's because the way that you're introducing that executable, that code, is through a set of scriptable commands, right? So you typically using PowerShell. You can do it with other, other things in PowerShell, but typically using PowerShell. Here's the problem. If you're doing it, how do you maintain persistence, right? That's the end game. Because you want to be in that environment. You want to be able to move from from your first target to other targets in your in your infrastructure. And to be able to do that and to maintain persistence, you need to put something somewhere on the system. And I've seen different methods of doing it, but at the end of the day, you are inserting your code into a file, typically the registry. The registry is a file. It's not mem- just memory. It's a file, right? So you, you are using a file-based attack. It's still a file-based attack at the end of the day. If you go into how do you deliver this file-based attack, well, three quarters of the time, it's a macro inside an, inside an attachment or a script inside of a zip. Isn't that a freaking file? 
I mean, come on, get off, get off my case. But just because you're running a PowerShell command to download executable code that's run in memory from the PowerShell doesn't mean you're not doing, a, you're not using files somewhere. So it's not really fileless. I'm sorry, it's just not fileless. <laughs> I think perhaps the issue, and we'll close, we'll kind of wrap up, and we'll give final thoughts in a moment. I think perhaps the issue is, is that people conflate the idea in an effort to over to simplify something that's not not necessarily simple for people, this idea of fileless attacks, right? To your point, when you're dependent upon a script, that script doesn't just materialize out of the ether. It comes from somewhere. It's delivered in some in some via some mechanism. So whether it's through a file or whether it's through a compromise of a system or multiple systems and then the the you know you know deployment via a malicious actor, right? So it's a little disingenuous to call it a fileless attack. I prefer scriptable attacks, but you know I understand why people call them fileless attacks. At the same token, it's not new either. I mean, PowerShell has been around for ten years, and before PowerShell, there were Perl comparable examples, and there were you know Python comparable examples, and then, you know so it's you know the reason I think that PowerShell gets the most the lion's attention right is because of the prevalence of PowerShell in in the last ten years worth of Windows operating systems. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and plus it's you know it's built in, right? It's it's right. not something that you add. I mean, Perl and, and you know Python, you deploying that on purpose onto a server to to do whatever or onto the machine. While PowerShell is now a fundamental part of the Windows operating system for even for for from the perspective of of Windows management services, it, they all use PowerShell to manage those those Windows, right? Those Windows installations. That's why it has bigger, bigger of an impact. But yeah, I think we can wrap. Actually, I've got one for you, Will. What do you think of this password sharing in the UK Parliament? Well, I'm sorry, say that again. So the story goes like this, right? So a parliamentary computer, or well, a, a computer for one of the UK MPs, was found to have pornography on it or something like that, right? During an investigation, one of his colleagues quickly jumped up and said, oh, but I don't think it's him. We all share our passwords so that our staff can get into our computers so that we share passwords between each other so we can share our computers. So, you know, these people that are making legislation and, you know, that are basically ruling on, let's say, cybersecurity policy uh, can't even follow basic principles of a password is secret to yourself. They're sharing passwords. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I did see something about that in the news from a few days back, right? That was Nadine, Nadine Dory, right? The password sharing thing. Yeah, I think it's, well, you know, it's, it's a classic example of do as I say, not as I do, right? It's exemplary of every time you see something like that, even within security organizations where you undermine your own practices by virtue, I won't say by virtue of need or necessity, but by virtue of trying to trying to expedite the completion of tasks. I'm sure that there was no maliciousness involved in that, but it does strike me as pretty as pretty ironic. But I, I would hardly believe that they are the only ones guilty of that. <laughs> no, I, I, I think this is probably common in in a number of areas, right? It's just I mean, I know I know CEOs, you know, big managers that do the same thing with their secretaries, right? And it's like it was the bane of some organizations that I consulted with in the past, right? It's just like, oh, but my what do you mean you want to do two-factor authentication? How is my secretary going to read my email? It's like, why is your secretary reading your email? Well, because she, you know, in the morning, she prints out everything from the read, and in the evening, she prints out everything so I can read it on the train. And I'm like, my brain just exploded. I think I returned to, like, the 1950s or something. 
Yeah, that would not be the first time I've heard that either. It's very common for administrative assistants to have passwords to their executive staff's emails, things of that nature. You know, is it a good practice? Odds are it's not a great practice if, if I'm a malicious actor, if I'm a, you know, if I'm a threat actor or an adversary and I want to target your executives and I can get to your executive administrator and I can comp- and compromising her, I compromise you, I win. So probably not a great, a great practice. With that in mind, everyone involved from Digital Guardian, this is the closing episode for the year 2017. So I just want to personally say thank you very much for allowing me to be a part of this podcast and contribute to it. And I'm really looking forward to 2018. Thomas, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, so, you know, Thomas, I'm on F- FVT on the internets. But also I'd like to thank you guys for listening. If you managed to get through this this episode, it was interesting year. And I'd like to wish everybody, you know, happy holidays and great festivities. And let's see what 2018 brings us. <laughs> and with that, this is a wrap. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next year.